This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. On this week's episode of PreserveCast, we're sitting down with fellow podcaster Liz Clappin, host of Tomb with a View, to talk about the world of cemetery history and preservation, to explore this unique and ever-present resource on America's historic landscape. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and we're excited today to be joined by Liz Clappen, who is an architectural historian, um, but also a fellow podcaster um, with the podcast Tomb with a View, um, and we're going to be talking about that and um, Liz's background in preservation and how that all came together. Um, and particularly cemeteries as well. And perfect timing because as we're recording this, um, tomorrow Preservation Maryland, which powers PreserveCast, is hosting our first uh, cemetery cleaning workshop in Maryland to try and get people um, aware of how to delicately take care of historic cemetery resources. So cemeteries matter to us and to me personally, and I know that they matter to Liz. So um, let's just, you know, people love to get to know who we're talking to. So who are we talking to? Who is Liz Clappen? Where'd you grow up? Um, What's your background? What do you do professionally? And why do cemeteries interest you so much? Certainly. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it is very exciting to see that you are taking on the uh, the issue of cemeteries. <laughs> um, I am originally from Rhode Island, the small state. Uh, so I grew up in the Northeast, which definitely has a huge impact on the way that I see history and preservation, and in particular cemeteries. Uh, I am an architectural historian by trade, as you said. I, uh, it is a second career for me. Before that, I was a teacher for about a decade and uh, started over when I, uh, there was a big layoff. Uh, So every teacher who had been hired in the previous five years, we didn't get a bond referendum. So we all lost our jobs and had to get creative. And it's one of those things that later my mother told me she was not surprised that I went into architectural history because I had always loved houses uh, and had made her watch a lot of boring documentaries about historic houses. And uh, she's still a little bitter now, 30 years later, but I think it turned out okay. Uh, In terms of what I do now, I have done quite a bit of consulting work in architectural history. I have worked in Section 106 Review, uh, primarily for the Georgia Department of Transportation. But now I have made the shift over and I work in urban planning for the city of Atlanta. So you're based in Atlanta. And where does the love of cemeteries come from? How far back does that track? Is that track similar to the second career or was there always an interest in cemeteries? I think there always was. Uh, One thing that most people don't realize about Rhode Island is that Rhode Island is one of the few, if not only, states that has completely cataloged all of their cemeteries. They have a very comprehensive database organized per town. Um, In most cases, they have complete necrologies of each cemetery. And as part of that, there are really comprehensive records and there are just cemeteries everywhere. So Rhode Island was founded under the auspices of religious freedom. That was 
the entire purpose of separating from the Massachusetts Bay Colony when Roger Williams set off. And so as a result, you don't have the same settlement pattern that you have in a lot of the early colonies, where you have either churchyard cemeteries or communal cemeteries in the center of town. In Rhode Island, they are spread out. There is a lot of them. Even some small towns can have as many as 60 or 70 cemeteries. And so as a result, they're everywhere. Uh, they're in your neighborhood. Um, my elementary school, middle school, and high school all had cemeteries on the properties. And it's one of those interesting things that if you hadn't been there, or if you have only been to Massachusetts and someplace like Plymouth, you might not realize that that close there is this really rich wealth of cemeteries and just communal cemetery knowledge. So I was always around them. It was something that for me was fascinating and it was never a frightening prospect. It was never a dark prospect because they were just a part of my everyday landscape. So you have, so you love cemeteries and then when does the jump come to, <laughs> I'm going to become a podcaster? So that that's a good question. So once I got into architectural history, it was always something I had had an interest in. And I suggested that that was going to be my thesis topic as I was going to look at architecture and cemeteries, particularly the relationship between cemeteries and urban planning. And I, I got a lot of blank looks at first uh, because even within the world of historic preservation and architectural history, cemeteries are often very niche. And so I set out to do that work and completed my thesis, went out in the world and started doing things. And I found my own niche. Uh, I became a member of the Association for Gravestone Studies. I started reading every book that I could find, but they were still few and far between. So as my passion grew and as I began to publish academically, it began to bother me that so much of the research about cemeteries was hidden behind a paywall. And so I wanted to put out there good and accurate information about cemeteries, about their history, their design, their preservation that was accessible to everyone. Whether you have a lay interest, whether you lead a volunteer group, whether you're just a history nerd, whatever it is, it was a place that you could land as a cemetery person. And how much, this is kind of wonky, but but how much of the challenge with cemeteries do you think is associated with the fact that they're hard to get on the National Register? That's an excellent question. And of course, there there is a whole bulletin about it. Right. But it's, it's you know, it's 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 very clear. I mean, even in like our SHPO, State Historic Preservation Officer, for people listening who aren't familiar, um, but even our SHPO, you know, and all SHPOs, not just ours, I'm not casting aspersions in Maryland, but like, you know, getting, getting things listed, uh, identifying cemeteries as a resource, um, investing in them, all of that still to this day remains to be a challenge. They're kind of in this like no man land, like gray area of are they historic resource or are they not? Um, and I mean, I don't know how you could argue that they're not, but the policy um, legacy of the challenge of getting them on the register um, seems to still just haunt us and, and probably caused a lot of the challenges that we have. I mean, do you agree with that? How, how much of that is tied up in that? Absolutely. And unfortunately, prior to the establishment of the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966, there was so much lost not just in terms of the material culture that we think about, you know, certainly they did the analysis of all of the Habs documentation and we had lost half of them that were documented during the WPA era. But cemeteries, I always tell people, any 
any highway that you drive down that was built during the Eisenhower administration, the odds are pretty good that there is a cemetery under there somewhere. And I think that there's a combination where the way that the criteria are laid out for the National Register makes it difficult for cemeteries. I think that there is a much bigger push now to recognize funerary art and architecture under Criterion C. I think that there has been a shift in that direction. Um, But the fact that someone famous is buried there is not enough to get you listed almost exclusively under Criterion A, which is a problem. So that's part of the problem. But also, I think it's just shifting attitudes about cemeteries in terms of urban planning and redevelopment. It happened pretty strongly from like the 20s through the 50s that there were just massive numbers of cemeteries wiped out. They were seen as blight. They were seen as a problem. And there was a culture, I think, up until that point where they were not necessarily seen as a positive. And so that even as we went into the preservation era, they were not the emphasis. In fact, most cemetery friends groups, if you look at them, they're formed in like the late 70s, 77, 78. You see a lot of these. That's when the Association for Gravestone Studies was formed. And I think it was a response to that first 10 years of the National Historic Preservation Act, not taking them seriously. Right. So your podcast, let's talk a little bit about your podcast, um, because I, you know, I want to promote a good fellow podcaster and get people who listen to PreserveCast to listen to Tomb of the View. What is Tomb of the View? How did it come about? What do you cover? Um, talk to us about your podcast. So uh, I am a self-taught podcaster. So I, I always put that out there. That, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it's not easy. So I do the research, I record, and I edit everything myself. Uh, I have been lucky enough to find other podcasting friends along the way. But There has been an abundance of cemetery podcasts that have popped up since the pandemic. Everybody has gotten themselves a microphone. Uh, And it's very exciting to me to see what other people do. In terms of cemetery podcasts here in the United States, I was the first. And I suffer sometimes from a lack of sentimentality. So a lot of the podcasts out there about cemeteries are biography-based, which is great. There's lots of fascinating people that have interesting graves Mine is less focused on that, and it's more focused on the cemeteries themselves. So how are cemeteries planned and designed? What do they tell us about the built environment? How do they factor in as part of the cultural landscape? I cover a wide variety of topics, and certainly I do cover specific groups. You know, I have covered Quakers and Shakers and all sorts of the fun microgroups that you find. I've covered controversial graves. So I've talked about people like, say, the Unabomber, people like Timothy McVeigh, um, the shooters from Columbine. I cover a lot of general culture, but I am also focused very much on what cemeteries can tell us about American values. Um, I recently, it was on Tuesday of this week that we are recording. It was the 200th anniversary of Frederick Law Olmsted's birth. So I just did a two-part episode on Frederick Law Olmsted and cemeteries. I cover a little bit of everything. So it's interesting because I've had people tell me that they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm not really a cemetery person. But cemeteries are so much of a reflection of our society. I try to cover all of that. So um, if if people... um are listening and they um, are interested in getting engaged around cemetery preservation. 
Um, I'm curious. So you, 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 you cover a lot of ground on the podcast and, um, you know, you, you kind of go into the history of these places. What about preservation of them? Do you get engaged in that? Do you have sort of best practices? Do you have things that you recommend people listening who care about cemeteries? Where, where do you, where do you fall on that? And what, you know, what, what have you seen that works well? No, and I will say that is one of the limiting factors of having a podcast is that hands-on preservation does take a certain learning curve and it does take a certain amount of actual visualization. I would say that what I try to cover is I try to cover the practical aspects of it. So the importance of having a master plan for organizing your cemetery preservation plan. Uh, I might actually be the odd man out in the fact that I actually discourage preservation unless you are absolutely sure what you're doing. Uh, because unfortunately, a lot of preservationists will tell you that 90% of their time is not fixing things that are broken, it's fixing things that were fixed badly before. And so, you know, everybody wants to grab a rake and everybody wants to go out there and clean up a cemetery. And I see it all the time where it was an Eagle Scout project or it was a volunteer work day for a corporation. And it looks great for a couple of months. And then the deterioration starts again and you get stuck in this cycle. So a lot of what I talk about is how to organize and how to work on a long-term plan, which I think is something that's not talked about enough in preservation, frankly. And I guess that's where my urban planning experience comes in because I look at it from the perspective of, all right, well, how does this cemetery being in this location, how does that work? Because I think that can also be the biggest secret to successful preservation. Make your cemetery a green space that's vital to your neighborhood. And that, if you look at the history of cemeteries, the rural cemetery movement, which develops starting with Mount Auburn Cemetery in 1831, that's exactly what they did with cemeteries. They were the first green spaces. Before there was a central park, there was Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And if you go back to the 1830s and 1840s, they are some of the most visited sites in the United States. Niagara Falls was number one in New York State. Greenwood Cemetery was number two, which is mind-blowing. There certainly is a cemetery tourism push today, but I think making cemeteries, which have so long been seen as, you know, wasted space or not useful, making them vital. So can we have community gardens in cemeteries? Can we have apiaries and raised bees in cemeteries? How, how can they be something that serves their community even after they no longer have burial space to sell? That's fascinating because, I mean, that's a lot of what preservation, you know, Preservation Maryland, we talk a lot about that where it's um, just saving a building is not enough. Like you can't just save a building for the sake of saving a building. And that's where we were, I think, in preservation maybe 60, 70 years ago. Got to save this building. And then it had no use and it fell apart over time. Um, so they have to have some type of dynamic community value or community use. And I mean, you know, I live this and I don't think I ever even really connected the dots on cemeteries that way, where it's like, can cemeteries play a role in a community? How can they add to the value of a community? You know, I sort of think of them as sort of static places. Um, but as as you suggest that, you know, I never thought about bees or, you know, I mean, I know that like... Um, Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. has a whole like dog walking component to it. And it's a very like vibrant, engaging space. Um, so that's fascinating. I think for people listening, thinking about activating cemeteries, uh, the least active place probably on the landscape. And how can you activate that? Well, and, you know, I have a few 
cemeteries that I have my eye on here in Atlanta, which Atlanta, we have about 75 cemeteries. Um, we have large ones that are well-known, like Historic Oakland, and they do all kinds of events. Oakland's also a city park. But the smaller ones, I see them as opportunities in a city that is growing exponentially. Um, you know, Atlanta's still, there. we're projected to add another 3 million to the metro area in the next decade. Green space is going to be a premium. And so we have these existing cemeteries that I think the potential for them to become heritage parks is, is really strong, particularly as we have development grow up around them. The risk is always that, well, they forget that the cemetery is there in the main, middle, it becomes overgrown, it becomes neglected. Well, what if that was part of the planning to begin with? And it's something that I think that some people have considered but there is also this fear where it's, you know, we don't touch cemeteries and that's a good thing. It means that they don't get demolished, but also we can touch them in a respectful and productive way. Right. Yeah. I mean, people used to picnic in cemeteries and now the idea of picnicking, if you went and saw somebody picnicking in a cemetery, you might even go tap them on the shoulder and be like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, you know, but, but in the 19th century, that was, you know, as, as you suggested. So let's take a quick break, come back. Talk about maybe some of your favorite cemeteries, cool cemetery stories, where people can find your podcast, uh, what's coming up next for you. We'll do all that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We are joined by Liz Clappen, who is an architectural historian as well as the host of Tomb with a View. Um, and we're talking all about cemeteries and activating cemeteries. So we've talked about cemeteries in the broad general sense. Um, and this is probably like picking your favorite child, but do you have like a favorite cemetery? Do you have cool cemetery stories that you want to tell us, uh, unique things that you've come across? What, what's your, what's your go-to cool cemetery story when you're at a, uh, at a, at a, uh, a cocktail party? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it always gives people pause, uh, first of all, when they ask what you specialize in or when you tell them what your podcast is about. Right. Uh, but, uh, I have, I have learned to embrace that and have certainly moved on. I mean, I think uh, you never forget your first. And the, the first cemetery I really fell in love with was Swan Point Cemetery in Providence, Rhode Island, not too far from where I grew up. And that was the topic of my thesis. Uh, I also think it's one of the hidden gems. It's very understudied and very underappreciated in the world of rural cemeteries. Uh, it's probably best known as being the burial place of H.P. Lovecraft, if you are a horror fan. Um, I wouldn't say he's the least interesting thing there, but there are a lot more interesting things. Uh, the, the funerary art, the way that it's situated along the river and the influence it had in developing the neighborhood around it. Um, 
you know, by putting in infrastructure, building boulevards, they had a streetcar line built so that people could get to the cemetery. Uh, it's it's quite a story. It really is. Um, so, I mean, it, it always, I always go back to that. It is a, a favorite, but I'm still continually discovering cemeteries, which is one of the things that I, I do really love about that. So, uh, you know, the, the, the best cemetery is the one I haven't discovered yet. That's, that's always the exciting next thing for me. So speaking of next things, uh, what kind of uh, episodes do you have coming up that um, people can subscribe to? Again, they can find you at Tomb with a View. We'll put a link in the show notes to the app, to the podcast. But um, what kind of episodes are coming up? What are you going to be covering? Uh, so right now I'm actually wrapping up uh, with the month of April. I was covering art in cemeteries, Artistic April. I couldn't come up with a catchier name than that. Like uh, but, but that was, uh, that was my theme. So I, uh, I've had a couple of great interviews. Uh, I have one more great interview coming out this week that I will definitely tease, um, with the editor of markers, which is the academic journal for the association for gravestone studies. Um, Beth Rohr, and she is, um, a professor at Chatham university in Pittsburgh. And she is going to be talking about, her work, which focuses on fine Italian sculpture in cemeteries. So looking at the physical art of cemeteries, which I think is exciting. Um, beyond that, uh, I am, I'm going in, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, I usually do some memorial stuff around Memorial Day. So I probably will talk about it. Last year, I did a, uh, a four-part series all about Arlington. Um, so we, we, we will see. I've got some interesting things in the works. Uh, I really want to start doing more interviews now that the world is opening up a little bit more. Um, you obviously, you could do them by Zoom, but uh, it's a little bit more interesting to uh, to do them in person, to try to get out in the, in the cemeteries with people if I can. So we, we'll see. Um, fingers crossed. Very cool. Um, and it, well, again, we'll, we'll put links in here um, to that. Um, before we go, um, you, uh, you know, the, the, you've, you've talked about sort of like, you know, your first, uh, favorite cemetery and sort of like never forgetting that one. Do you have a favorite historic place or site? I know that that's a, that's a challenging thing, but, um, I'm curious what, what resonates with you? Historic place or site? Well, I will say this, um, so before I loved cemeteries, uh, the first buildings I really remembered loving were lighthouses. And again, I come from Rhode Island, which is the ocean state. So Rhode Island has, I believe, upwards of 20 different lighthouses. Um, so for me, I can remember the first time I actually walked up to the base of a lighthouse and was able to look up and just see how tall it was and to look at the engineering. Um, the one that particularly comes to mind is Southeast Light, which is on Block Island off the coast of Rhode Island. And it's it's a beautiful sort of almost Richardson Romanesque um, red brick with a first order Fresnel lens, which Fresnel lenses, if you're not familiar with lighthouse technology, those are the sort of bullseye looking glass lenses that bend and project light so that you can see lighthouses from 20 miles away. And to see it, and it's large enough that I could stand inside it and to imagine the engineering that must have gone into that. So yeah, so historic lighthouses, if I had to pick a favorite historic building, that would probably be it. And if you had to pick a favorite cemetery? Favorite cemetery overall? Oof. 
that 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 is tough. well you can categorize them if you'd like but i mean I, normally we don't go into specific resources but because you're a <laughs> podcaster about cemeteries i feel like we need to we need to pick your brain about cemeteries or places maybe the other one would be if you were to encourage people to go visit a, a cemetery or two which ones would you encourage them to go see well i, I mean and i always break the, the history of cemeteries down into blocks so i mean if you were to do the grand tour and you wanted to get a taste. I mean, start with something like the old Granary Burial Ground in Boston to show you what colonial cemeteries look like. That's where a lot of the founding fathers are buried, Paul Revere, etc. Then you're going to want to see the New Haven Burial Ground in New Haven, Connecticut, which was the first incorporated cemetery in the United States. They broke things down by selling plots to different groups, including Yale University. Then you're going to want to go to Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge. You're going to have to go back. You're going to stay in New England for a while. Mount Auburn is the first rural cemetery in the United States. And then if you want to see where the transition happens to modern, you're going to have to go to California to Forest Lawn Memorial Park, which is in Glendale, California. Uh, It's where Walt Disney is buried, Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Jackson. Uh, And that is the push towards removing upright markers and making markers flush. So in terms of just overall planning and marketing, understanding how cemeteries are sold. Like that, that, that's a good grand tour, I think, that you could take to just trace the history and see how cemeteries evolve over time. So like that, that. That, that's, that, that's, a, that's a fair recommendation. But if you want to get the most bang for your buck for cemeteries, the one town that you probably have never heard of, I would say go to Colma, California. And the city of San Francisco, starting at the turn of the last century, outlawed burials, not just inside city limits, but inside the whole county. So directly south of where the airport is today. And let me stop you for a second. Yeah. Why? That's a very complex question. Um, A lot of it, a lot of it had to do with wanting land for other things. So, for example, the four largest cemeteries, which were called the Lone Mountain Cemeteries, They eventually became part of what is today uh, Golden Gate Park. So they repurposed that. It was a very urban, early urban renewal. Secondly, they were seen as places of vice. You know, you read a lot of articles about how, you know, prostitutes would hang out in cemeteries and, you know, opium smokers and things like that. But I think it was just at the end of the day that the land was so valuable that the cemeteries got pushed out. So they established this little farm town called Colma became where they moved all the, so they moved the four large cemeteries, didn't do a terribly good job, moved all of those out to Colma and then started new cemeteries. And so now there are far more dead. There's over a million dead in Colma in multiple cemeteries, ones serving every denomination, every faith, all different styles. Um, but you can go there and you, then you can go to Malloy's, which is the Irish pub there. And you can see mourners from funerals drinking with the grave diggers. And it's just a weird cemetery paradise if you're interested in that. It's it's quite an experience. Do you have an episode on Colma? Uh, so I did do an episode on the cemetery removals. Yes, that was actually one of my early episodes that I did early on. But yeah, Colma is quite something. But we'll have to have to encourage people to download that. Well, this has been really fun. So interesting to 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 get to know you, get to know about your podcast, um, get to go on the virtual grand tour of these unique <laughs> and strange and um, uh, uh, fun places. And um, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we'll uh, 
we'll, we'll see you in iTunes on uh, in, in podcast <laughs> world. Thanks so much again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.